You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, you don't need an invitation. We believe you are present with your people. We ask that we would have eyes to see and hearts that believe what is already true. That you are with your people. That you desire to not just anchor us to the truth, but to teach us and instruct us and encourage us with your word. So I pray that we would overflow in worship, not just in song, but here as we open your word and in a few moments as we take the Lord's Supper together, as we worship uh, through the Lord's table, through communion and uh, through prayer, through time in your word and through song, that you'd receive the praise that you alone deserve. Teach us by your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen, you can have a seat. Uh, Good morning, River City. We're continuing in Luke's gospel, so go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18. We're going to finish out our chapter uh, today. Uh, We're going to read verses 31 through 43. Um, And if you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around. uh, can get one for you to follow along. Uh, Luke chapter 18. Um, I used this illustration uh, last week, but because it happened again this week, I'm going to use it again. Except for it wasn't me this time. It was one of my kids. I said, hey, can you get something from the fridge? I'm not going to name names because I don't embarrass them. But if you could, hey, could you get this out of the fridge for me? And they opened the fridge and they're like, I don't see it. They closed the fridge. I said, it's right there on the top shelf. And they opened the fridge and they're like, oh, there it is on the top shelf. It may have been hiding behind something, but it was there. It was there. It happens to all of us, right? We look right past something obvious. Another example would be one that happened, I didn't even have it in my notes because it happened to me last night. I had to replace one of the belts on my snowblower. I had already purchased the belt and I thought, this shouldn't take long. Well, that wouldn't have taken long if, one, I really understood how that belt was attached on the inside of the snowblower, and two, I had the right belt. So a trip to Menar, or excuse me, a trip to Fleet Farm at like 7 o'clock last night, and I found one. I think it's the right size. It only started smoking a little when I used it, but it did work. But putting it back together, you can ask Ben. Uh, he helped me out. He was a great help to like put this thing back together. There were multiple times where I missed a step in the process of putting it back together right, and I reattached something, and we were like, oh, wait, I have to put this part on first. So it took a lot longer than it needed to. The, the, the problem was I overlooked a simple step in the process. Like, oh, yeah, I should have attached this part before attaching that part, right? So I have to go back and and do it again. And we we do that all the time. In our text today, we're going to see a blind man whose whole life was lived in the dark until Jesus heals him. And he lived to that point physically blind. He was missing a lot of life just through his eyeballs, which maybe even if we have physical sight, we can still relate. We miss a lot of things. But in many ways, this man who we read about had spiritual sight long before his eyes were healed. And we're going to talk about that. So let's read our text. We're going to read uh, Luke 18, starting in verse 31. 
We're going to read all the way to the end. Uh, You can follow along. It'll be on the screen or follow along in your Bibles. Uh, This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Luke 18, starting in verse 31. This is Jesus. Now taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is God's word for us this morning. Now, before we get into Jesus' healing of the blind man, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, I want to first just briefly talk about what Jesus says to his disciples about his coming suffering. This is now the third time in Luke's gospel where Luke records Jesus telling his disciples what's going to happen. That the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be mocked, he's going to be spat upon, and ultimately he's going to be crucified. And the third day he will rise. If you remember, back in Luke 17, before Jesus healed those 10 lepers, Luke tells us that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Why was he heading to Jerusalem? For this purpose that he just told his disciples again. I'm going to Jerusalem to be beaten, to be spat upon, and to be crucified. He knew it. He told his disciples this before. And every time Jesus seems to tell his disciples, hey guys, this is going to happen, every time they seem to not fully grasp what he is saying. Luke says, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. None of them. So the question I ask as I read this is, okay, they've heard this now from Jesus multiple times. Why? Why do they not get it? And there's few reasons why it could be. It's possible that the disciples, that they can't understand this because it's just hidden from them by the Holy Spirit in, for some, in some way. Later in the account of Jesus, when Jesus is uh, resurrected and he's walking along the road to Emmaus and some disciples don't recognize him until later in their conversation when he breaks bread and the scriptures say their eyes were opened and finally they understood that this was Jesus who they were talking to. That could be happening here. They just don't get it yet because God hasn't fully opened their eyes to it. That could be possible. It could also be that they just didn't want to believe that what Jesus was telling them 
could actually be true. They've seen Jesus now do too much. They love him too much. They kind of echo Peter's words like, no, Lord, we will never let that happen to you. That could be part of it. Or it's possible that they were just stuck in their own ideas still, too stuck in their own ideas of what God's Savior was supposed to look like. Remember, they weren't waiting for a suffering servant. They were waiting for a conquering king. And so the way Jesus was going to conquer and rule through death was strange to them. And we don't really know their reasons, but what we do know is this. The end of verse 34, they did not grasp what was said. Now we're going to talk about this idea more as we move towards well, Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry as Jesus nears Jerusalem. But I, but I want to highlight it here before we get on to this blind man because there's a blindness here amongst the disciples too. They're not seeing reality, spiritual reality. Their eyes worked, but they were missing something. If I can say it this way, the disciples were looking into the refrigerator of God's sovereign plan and saying, I don't see it. I don't see what you're talking about, Jesus. It's not here. And, I, and there's more we can unpack there, but, but I want to hold off on that a little bit. But I do want to have this interaction, this lack of ability to see what's really happening, kind of in our minds as we look at a physically blind man here in a moment. That there's a spiritual veil, a blindness, if you will, even amongst those who are close to Jesus, to really see what's going on. I just want to have, have us have that in our minds as now we look at of a man who is literally blind. He physically can't see. And yet, this blind man seems to see his need and the solution to his need with pretty remarkable clarity. So much so that he puts himself in the path of Jesus who can meet that need. So from verses 35 to 43, we have this story of a man who was blind, and we'll unpack it here in a minute. But when he finally gets to Jesus, Jesus asks him a pretty remarkable question. What do you want me to do for you? And this man says, I, I want to see. I, I want my sight restored. And so that's part of the question I want us to wrestle with as we look at a text like this. Where are we blind? Where are we living blind? Unable to see. And maybe that's not physical blindness. Probably for many of us, it's not. It's spiritual. Where are we living blind? And as we look at this text, I want to also take away this encouragement that what Jesus is asking of this man, he's asking of us. What do you want me to do for you? And that we would recognize that rather than having to live blind, you and I are being called to live a life that sees God's grace. That we can actually see God's grace at work. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you, that you and I would respond, I want to live the kind of life that sees, that invites the grace of God. So let's get after this account. Now, this part of the narrative, this story of Jesus healing a blind man is not just recorded in Luke. Matthew records it and Mark records it as well. Luke doesn't tell us his name. But in Mark, chapter 10, Mark does tell us his name. This man's name is Bartimaeus. I think these three gospel accounts is the same story. Now, it's interesting because in most of the accounts of the gospel where Jesus heals someone or does something miraculous, we never learn their name. 
We're not told who they are. The focus isn't on them. The focus is on Jesus. And yet, Mark decides to tell us this man's name is Bartimaeus, which is interesting. If, by the way, if you're looking for a boy name, if you're having a boy, and you, Bartimaeus is a great name. Not real, you know, it'll be unique, but, you know, biblical. Bartimaeus. Just throwing it out there. Now, biblical scholars and historians believe that maybe one of the reasons that Mark names Bartimaeus, like says his name in the text, is that he would have been known by the early church that met in Jerusalem. It's as if this was, would be the story. Like someone in the church many months later is recounting the story of Jesus healing a blind man on his way to Jerusalem. And, and whoever would be teaching that would say, Jesus healed a blind man named Bartimaeus on his way to Jerusalem, and Bartimaeus praised the name of Jesus. Is that how it went, Bartimaeus? And Bartimaeus would stand up in the back and be like, yeah, that's about how it was. I used to not be able to see. Jesus told me I could see. Now I can see. Praise his name. That's essentially what, what historians think, which is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And, and Mark is recording this, likely from the, of the, from the account of the Apostle Peter, like his first-hand account, and Mark's there kind of... So, so it would be amongst people who would know who he is, the church that gathered in Jerusalem. So as the story of Bartimaeus is being taught, they'd be able to literally point at him and be like, that's the guy. Which is why we think Mark actually names him, which is kind of cool. In Luke's case, his audience is a little different, and so is the aim of his writing, and so the the name of Bartimaeus from Luke's perspective isn't as important as the focus of what Jesus is trying to do, but like I said, these are the same parallel accounts. And I think, so if you're reading this and you want to study this a little further, uh, read Luke 18 in line with Mark 10 and you're, and you're reading this week and it's a great kind of pairing together. So, so this blind man hears commotion in the city. And this is interesting. Those who have loss of one physical ability tend to have heightened other physical abilities that their body uses to compensate, right? If you lose some sight, maybe your hearing or sense of smell is heightened as a way to compensate. And so it's likely that Bartimaeus is used to the normal sounds of commotion in the city and today is something altogether different. That Jesus and the entourage of people who are now flocking to him everywhere he goes are creating such a commotion that Bartimaeus, who has maybe slightly increased hearing, is going, something is different in the city today. And the people around him told him, well, yeah, of course it's different today. Jesus of Nazareth is coming through the city. So Jesus' reputation had clearly been growing. People are flocking to him. People are following him from place to place. News of his miracles and his teaching has now spread. And this man, who has been placed likely in the same spot in the city or right outside the city of Jericho, for most of his life to beg, puts himself in Jesus' path by saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. And in this interaction, two things happen. That's a really long introduction. Two things happen. Bartimaeus asks, and Jesus makes an offer. So that's how I kind of want to look at the text today. I want to look at Bartimaeus' request, his ask, and I want to look at Jesus' offer. So let's look at the first thing. The first thing of this blind man, he is seeking mercy. He is seeking the mercy of God. And in his ask, he knows himself. 
Here's what I mean by that, that mercy and knowing himself go together. What's clear from the very beginning of this interaction is Bartimaeus knows his own condition. That's the first component of his request. He knows he is not deserving of anything. So if there's any help to be coming his way, he knows it will be because of mercy. Mercy is undeserved. If it was owed to him, he'd be seeking justice. Like the widow was before the judge, she was seeking justice. I have a right. You need to fulfill my right. In this case, he knows I have no right to be healed. I have, I'm not owed healing. I'm asking for God to be merciful. I don't deserve it, but I'm asking for it. And I think that tells us that Bartimaeus knows himself. He knows his own condition. It was theologian Jonathan Edwards who wrote this, that they who truly come to God for mercy come as beggars and not as creditors. They come for mere mercy, for sovereign grace, and not for anything that is due. The first marker of his request, his ask, is that he knows himself, and because he knows he is not worthy, he asks for mercy. Secondly, he knows Jesus. He doesn't just know his own condition. He knows Jesus, or at least he knew enough about Jesus to believe that Jesus could do something about his condition. Notice the title he uses. He calls Jesus Son of David. This is a messianic, a prophetic title for Jesus. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, the passage we often read at Christmas time, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Let me just read a little bit from Isaiah 9, verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. God's promised Savior, His Messiah, the one who would save His people from their sins, was called the Son of David. He would rule the nations from David's throne forever. And this blind Bartimaeus calls out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And I don't think he's just trying to flatter Jesus here. Like, if I use a good name for him, will he hear me? I think Bartimaeus actually believes that Jesus is who he says he is. He actually believes this guy is the promised Messiah. What's more, Bartimaeus is relentless in his pursuit of Jesus. In in both Luke's account and in Mark 10, the people in front of him tell him to be quiet. It's akin to... Be quiet, you. Pipe down. It's kind of what it sounds like. Stop bugging Jesus. But he is not deterred. I love the way that both Luke and Mark say it. He calls out all the more. Son of David, have mercy on me. The picture here is one of increasing volume and intensity. He will not relent which is that third part of his ask, his request. It is a relentless cry. He is the physical picture, if you will, of that persistent widow who just won't stop knocking until he gets an answer. 
That's what's happening here. He will not be hindered. He's going to keep asking and calling out, even when the people in front of him are saying, hey, you, be quiet. Stop bugging him. He doesn't have time for you. And the final thing we see about the request from Bartimaeus is that he's ready. When Jesus finally does call out to him and bring him to him and ask him a question, he is ready with an answer. When Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? He says, Jesus, I want to see There's no delay, there's no waiting, there's no, ah, hold on, let me get my list. He knows what he needs, and he's ready to respond. He's ready. So this request, this ask of his for mercy comes through a man who knows his condition. He knows he's undeserving. He also knows Jesus and what Jesus alone can do for him. He is relentless in his crying out, and he is ready so that when he does encounter Jesus, he can receive, his hands are open to receive whatever it is that Jesus thinks is good to give him. That's the ask from Bartimaeus in the story, his request. Second, we see Jesus offer. Bartimaeus asks, he calls out in faith to Jesus, Faith that Jesus is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he can do. And then look at how Jesus responds, if you will. First, Jesus hears and stops. Don't overlook that. Don't overlook that Jesus hears. Above the noise of the crowd, Jesus hears the cries of a man crying out for mercy. The cries of one individual rise above the noise, the superficial noise of the crowd. Jesus hears and stops. With all the commotion and noise of the crowd, Jesus hears the genuine cry of one man. Jesus hears the cries of Bartimaeus and he stops. Remember, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, If you remember all the way back, I don't remember when we even read through Luke 9, but there's a group of people. Jesus has been with them, he's healed, he's taught, and he's leaving, and they're upset with him that he's leaving. And Jesus says, I can't stay here with you. Luke tells us that Jesus has his face set on Jerusalem. He's on a mission to save the world. And on mission, he hears the cries of this blind beggar, and he stops. Second, he doesn't just hear, he calls. In this case, commands. He commands the people, maybe even one of his disciples standing near him and says, hey, go go get that screaming man and bring him to me. Bring him to me. Jesus takes personal interest in expressing mercy. And and just, this is a a freebie, take this one home. Jesus is never passive in his love. Never. He is always intentional. So he commands that Bartimaeus be brought near to him. And then as if it wasn't obvious to everybody else what Bartimaeus actually needs, the third thing Jesus does is he asks. He asks a question. What do you want me to do for you? Now this might seem strange to you, and and some have used this interaction between Jesus and Bartimaeus, I think to say some things about Jesus that Jesus is not saying. 
When Jesus asks obvious questions like this, it's not because there's some bit of information that Jesus doesn't yet have. Jesus is fully aware of Bartimaeus' needs here. I think everyone is fully aware of Bartimaeus' needs here. And the sovereign triune God knit Bartimaeus together in his mother's womb. And even in his blindness, as the psalmist says, he is fearfully and wonderfully made. So there's not information that Jesus needs in order to diagnose what Bartimaeus needs. I think questions that Jesus asks like this are the means by which the Lord is drawing out a response. He's asking this question of Bartimaeus to draw out Bartimaeus' faith. What do you believe, Bartimaeus? What do you believe? That's why I'm asking you the question. And not because Jesus doesn't know what Bartimaeus believes. I'm pretty sure he knows his heart. But so that Bartimaeus has an opportunity to express and confess that faith out loud. So it's as if Jesus is saying to him, you called me Messiah. You asked me for mercy. Close the loop, man. Get specific. What do you want? What do you believe? And Bartimaeus says, Lord, let me recover my sight. He's ready with his answer. And the fourth thing Jesus does is he heals. It's the completion of this offer. Mark 10 tells us that Jesus touched him. Luke just says, he said. Both can be true. Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. With a word, Jesus heals him. Verse 43, and immediately... He recovered his sight. Now, just for a second, can you imagine what that must have been like? To go from complete darkness to light? The first thing that Bartimaeus saw was not a sunrise or a mountaintop. The first thing he saw was the face of Jesus who healed him. Tradition holds that when it says Bartimaeus followed him, that he literally left his life in Jericho and joined the company of the disciples. It's possible that Bartimaeus was with the large crowds that we'll read about in a few weeks as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches and calling out Hosanna, which means save us. Hosanna to the son of David. It's possible and probably likely that Bartimaeus is among that crowd of people. We know that there are 12 who were closest to Jesus, his 12 disciples. In Acts chapter 1, there's 11. Judas is no longer with them. We don't talk about that later. But Luke writes in Acts chapter 1 that Peter stands up amongst this larger company of disciples. And then Luke, or Luke in Acts 1 tells us, and they're numbered about them about 120. Right? So there's the 11 and then there's 109 more, give or take. Sorry, I just did some math. Hope I did that, did that right. I was told there would be no math. We don't know for sure, but it's very likely that perhaps Barnabas, or excuse me, uh, Bartimaeus was among them, prayerfully waiting in Jerusalem with all the others, just as Jesus said when he, before he ascended to the sky, sending the Holy Spirit. What we do know is that for sure is that Bartimaeus followed Jesus and worshipped him. 
which is a pretty remarkable interaction. This is the last of Jesus' outward physical miracles before he makes that long march to the cross. So what do we do with a passage like this? A narrative passage like this? So I think two things rise to the surface when we find ourselves, if you will, in the story. Finding ourselves more in the place of the needy Bartimaeus. Two things rise to the surface for us. His faith and the fact that he followed Jesus. Here's where I think we can start to do some reflection and application. We've read it before and we read it again here. Jesus straight up says it. Your faith has made you well. And the question that rises to the surface when we see this phrase all over Jesus' teaching is, what does he mean by this? What does he mean that his faith made him well? Does it mean that Bartimaeus had a strong enough faith or the right amount of faith in this instance in order to be healed? I don't think that's the case. At least, if you remember, not that long ago we read that if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is very tiny, you can tell this mountain to get up and move. So it's not about the amount or the strength of the faith. And if it's not about the amount or the strength, then it must be the object. It's the object of Bartimaeus' faith. He has faith in the son of David and his mercy. So Jesus saying, your faith has made you well, tells us that Bartimaeus' belief, his faith in Jesus, was the means, the conduit, if you will, that Jesus used to heal him of his blindness. It was Jesus' power at work, and he opted to use the means of Bartimaeus' confession. It wasn't the faith that was the agent. Jesus was the agent. And faith was the conduit. It received the power of God that brought about his healing. Not only his physical sight, But I believe when Jesus says your faith has healed you, spiritual life was growing in Bartimaeus because he praised God and he followed him. And that's the same for you and for me as well. It's the object of our faith. Do we ask in faith to see? Are we trusting in ourselves or we're waiting on some other person or some other thing to save us or to heal us? Do we see ourselves rightly as undeserving and in need of mercy? Before Christ, completely spiritually blind, and even as Christians who were once blind, but now we see how often do we foolishly continue to stumble around in the dark, sometimes with our own hands over our own eyes, suffering needless in spiritual blindness? Do we see Jesus for who He truly is? Do we call out to Him? Do we seek Him relentlessly as the only one who can actually deal with our brokenness? And do we do so not because we deserve it, but because we don't and we need His mercy? We approach Him like we would a king, both boldly and humbly. Let me ask it this way. Do you hear him calling out to you to get up and come to him rather than staying in the same comfortable place you've always sat? 
when the one who made you and knows you is calling you to come to him. Oh, that the Spirit of God would increase my faith. See, Bartimaeus called out to Jesus in faith, believing he is the Messiah. And he worships him on the backside of this interaction. interaction. He worships him by faith as his Savior and follows him. So that's the second takeaway. It's not just belief. It's not just his faith, but the fact that he follows. He didn't just receive back his physical sight. For Bartimaeus, everything changed. Everything. He left his little spot on the curb and he followed Jesus. And he worshipped. And what I love about this description of Bartimaeus' praise is it's active and intentional. It's purposeful. It spilled out of him. So much so that Luke tells us that when all the other people saw it, verse 43, they too gave praise to God. I don't know about you, but I want this kind of faith. I want the the willingness to lay down everything and follow Jesus like this. If I want to find myself in the story somewhere, this is where I would hope to do it. As the needy, blind beggar who is rescued by Jesus and leaves everything to follow him. I don't want to be, although I think I sometimes am, too much like the crowd in the front. Luke 18, verse 39, the people in the front, when Bartimaeus calls out, they rebuked him. They told him, hey, quiet down. I don't want to be like that guy. And and Luke doesn't tell us this, but Mark's account in Mark 10 does. Mark 10, verses 49, there's actually another group of people around Bartimaeus. There's the ones in the front who say, be quiet, man. But there's another group that when Jesus calls to him, bring him to me. Mark tells us, Mark 10, 49, that there's a group of people around him who say, hey, Bartimaeus, did you hear? Take heart. Get up. Jesus is calling for you. I want to be like those guys. That's part of my responsibility here this morning is to hopefully be those people standing next to you telling you, take heart. Get up. Jesus is calling for you. He's calling for you. I want to echo the words from Pastor Kent Hughes. He was preaching on this text, and he goes, I want to be like those people in the crowd cheering you on. And I say, amen. So friends, hear me this morning. Jesus, the good king, the son of David, the savior who made you, who knows you, who died for your sins, the savior who is a physical representation of God's mercy, hear me, Jesus is calling you hear that today. You want out of darkness? You want spiritual life? Then cry out to him, Jesus, have mercy on me. Lord, take away my blindness. And I think what we see here in this passage in Luke is that Jesus loves to answer that prayer. He's not deaf to it. Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, He says this, for the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting 
of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's happening here with Bartimaeus. Is that the, the perishable is getting a sampling of the imperishable. It's what Jesus does in his death and resurrection. In, in that the, the perishable puts on the imperishable. That's what is offered to you and to me. The mortal puts on immortality. Then we will see. Then we will see. It was English poet, once slave trader, radically saved by the gospel, turned minister, John Newton, who wrote what might be the most well-known hymn in the English language. Amazing grace, he wrote. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Friends, you and I are being invited out of a life of blindness and into a life of spiritual sight. So, Let's place ourselves in the path of God's grace so that we might see his grace and mercy in Jesus, that we might be changed, that we might follow him and worship him. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray you'd help us to see just how remarkable and amazing your grace and mercy is. We confess we can't unwretched ourselves we can't unlost ourselves. We can't unblind ourselves. It is your kindness that turns wretches into sons and daughters, that turns the lost into those found, that gives the blind sight. We thank you for the fresh reminder of this mercy, and we ask that you would increase our faith. That for those who in this room maybe don't have any faith yet to speak of, that you would rescue and redeem, that you would help us to see ourselves as blind beggars deserving of nothing, and yet you are kind to extend mercy, that when we cry out for mercy, you stop and hear and welcome us to yourself. And for those who have, by your grace, been granted sight, confess it is easier and more comfortable to continue to walk around in the dark. So I pray in your mercy you wouldn't let us do that, but the light of your mercy would shine fresh on us that we might, as First John says, that we might walk in the light, that you might remove the, the dullness from around our eyes, And that we might with joy shed the scales. Embrace you who have embraced us, Lord Jesus, and follow. We want to receive from you whatever you see fit to provide for us. So we come to you with hands open and hearts open. Son of David, have mercy on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.